0: dag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler om USA. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg, og jeg vil i dag præsentere jer for en samtale, som jeg har glædet mig til i... Jeg har lyst til at sige 100 år, så længe har jeg jo ikke levet, men i hvert fald i årtier. Cornel West har været en enestående amerikansk intellektuel i de sidste 50 år. Han er en af de største sorte filosofer i USA. Han er en helt vild aktivist. Han har været med til at bære... Bernie Sanders' kampagnen. Han har slås med alle de store og omfavnede alle de onde. Han er i dag professor i praktisk filosofi på Harvard University. Han har skrevet adskillige bestsellere, og både præsident Bill Clinton og præsident Obama forsøgte at blive gode venner med ham, og han mødtes med dem. Og bagefter så undsagte han dem. Good morning in America. Cornel West, thank you so very much for being with
1: us.
2: Thank you, and I want to salute you, my brother, for being such a Force for good in the language of John Coltrane. And it's always a blessing for me to be connected in some way with the great land of Soreen Kierkegaard, who has enriched and empowered me in crucial ways on the chocolate side of Sacramento, California, in the black community. That Danish thinker helping me free myself so I can become a stronger truth teller and justice seeker.
0: Hannah, en enestående intellektuel fordi han kommer med en pakke som ingen andre jeg kender. Han er både stærkt troende kristen, voldsomt radikal socialist, intenst spekulerende filosof, optaget af jazz og blues og hele den sorte amerikanske kultur. Han har sågar også udgivet hiphop albums.
1: You've been a guiding light for us here for decades and an inspiration and we've heard your call and read your writings, but there's one thing about you especially that I admire and that I would even say that I love and that is the great spirit with which you engage.
0: Der er ingen der kan så meget som Cornel West og der er ingen der er så radikale som Cornell West og samtidig er der ingen der er så gode til at omfavne dem han er uenig med og respektere uenigheden. Jeg håber I får lige så meget glæde af den her samtale med Cornel West som jeg har.
1: You have this weird capacity of being politically radical and yet embracing your opponents at the same time. Where does does that great spirit come from?
2: Oh, brother, you're very kind. Well, you got to keep
1: in mind now, you
2: see, I come from a great people who at our best have been chronically hated for 400 years and still produce love warriors like Martin Luther King Jr. and Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and Fannie Lou Hamer. We've been terrorized and traumatized for 400 years, but we produce wounded healers at our best in the music, in politics, in our churches, in the mosque, in the synagogues and so forth. You know, when Malcolm X says, I'm for truth no matter who says it, I'm for justice no matter who's against it, and I'm, first and foremost, a human being and a black man, and he's a Muslim. Now, I'm a Christian. We on the common ground in terms of that spirit. And then we, I'm a blues man. See, I'm a jazz man. See, so no matter what the catastrophe is, I'm going to have a smile. I'm going to keep my style, It's like B.B. King. Nobody loves me but my mama, and she might be driving too. <laughs> but he sings it with style, with a little help from Lucille, you see, and the tradition that comes through him. So in that sense, I'm just one small little wave in this larger ocean, but it's an ocean that's also full of tears, as you know, from all of the the slavery, the Jim Crow, the Jane Crow, the lynching, the ghettoization, the the hoods, all the vicious attacks that we have to come to terms with every day of our lives, though, brother.
1: You have this wonderful quote where you say that you're a Christian blues man in the life of the mind and a Christian jazz man in the world of, of ideas. I'm not sure I exactly know what it means, but I just love the wording, wording of it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's clear to me that as an, as an intellectual, you stand out because you come with a very big package of Christianity, of blues, of jazz, of even hip hop culture and, and literature. And this big cultural package that you engage in, that you keep with you, and that has shaped your political activities as well. How how, how did did this culture package uh, influence you?
2: Well, one, you know, in many ways, in a literary mode, it would be connected with Anton Chekhov, who's the greatest literary artist, I think, in the last 150 years or so. It'd be connected with any tragic comic sense. I mean, Samuel Beckett has it. Kafka has it. Uh, It's a matter of acknowledging the degree to which we live in a cold and cruel world. So you have to be in the world, but not of it. You've got to hold on to a lens through which you view the world. Now, as a Christian, I view the world through the cross. And that cross was what? That was a site for a political assassination of a Roman empire trying to snuff out the good, snuff out love, snuff out compassion, snuff out empathy, snuff out any attempt that gets us beyond our egoism and our tribalism. That's what that Palestinian Jew Jesus was all about, trying to get us to love everybody, beginning with trans, gays, lesbians, Jews, Arabs, Muslims, Mexicans, white, brown, everybody. Now, anybody who opts for that way of being in the world is headed toward the cross, is headed toward misunderstanding, is headed toward character assassination, is headed toward being rebuked and scorned, yet you have a style and a strength and a smile that allows you to bear witness any way. Now. It's true, you know, Chekhov is not a Christian. Beckett was not a Christian. Kafka was not a Christian. But they understood the centrality of compassion. They understood the centrality of love. So you got a number of secular brothers and sisters, agnostic or atheists, who oftentimes have much more love than my fellow Christians. There's more love in the Chekhov short story than there is in many Christian churches, believe me.
1: You, you mentioned Christ yourself in your autobiography. You write, you write that Christ is at the center. He's the motivator and the moral instructor. And I, I know a lot of people who claim they're inspired by Christ, that they don't all come out with the good spirits that, <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> that you do. You know, that, that's a garden with a lot of different flowers in it. And it seems that you have your own way of, of uh, embracing, embracing the teachings of uh, Christ.
2: Where no, you're absolutely right. And I love that metaphor, a garden with a lot of flowers in it. I like that. <laughs> you're getting poetic here. Yeah, I love it. But uh, uh, no, I mean, we know that uh, the dominant form of religion in any form, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, the dominant forms tend to accommodate themselves to the prevailing status quos, prevailing empires. Prevailing uh, predatory capitalist uh, modes of being, predatory. Uh, and the prevailing patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia. So my, I'm only talking about the prophetic sparks and the prophetic elements and the prophetic witnesses within those religious traditions. You see, and so, uh, uh, and so in that way, it's a matter of holding on to certain structures of feeling and structures of value that lend one to live a life in which you see things more clearly, including the suffering of everybody in your vision and analysis of the world. This is why Marxism is still indispensable, even though in the end it's inadequate but it's indispensable because you have to keep track of predatory capitalism in all of its various forms. It could be Wall Street dominated, it could be corporate dominated, it could be industry dominated, whatever form the predatory capitalism, you had to keep track so you're going to need some Marxist tools for that. Same is true in terms of feminist tools. Same is true in terms of any tools uh, keeping track of white supremacist ideology and what have you. But then you have to be able to feel more deeply. You have to have compassion for Dalits in India, the Roma in Europe, the working classes in, in Denmark, the landless peasants in Brazil, the Palestinians under Israeli occupation, the Jews in a anti-Jewish France or Russia. You're, you have to allow your compassion to flow in such a way that the lens through which you view the world, the feeling and compassion that you have, and then most importantly, you've got to act more courageously. You can't be a coward. can't be conformist. You can't be complacent. You have to stay on fire for a deep concern and be willing to take a
1: risk, cut against the grain. And this really is a moment that requires, especially you in America, to stay on fire because this is such, seems to be such a crucial moment in America. And, you know, we're cultural Americans here in Denmark, but we're not political. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's yeah. a nice way of putting it. That's a nice way of
1: putting it. <laughs> Americans. I mean, we grew up with, with with your culture, but not with the political views of America. So we are in your world, but we don't have a voice in in your world, and and that's why, of course, I'm very curious to how you see this specific moment in time in 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 America. It, it seems to us here that th- that everything that's rotten in America has been revealed by uh, disclosed by COVID-19. That everything Bernie Sanders said was wrong with America is now open to the world. But but what, what one asks oneself here is. Is this like a a zero moment? Is this collapse of of America? Do you believe this could be a transformative experience for your country? I know this is a big question, but I know you can answer it.
2: But it's a crucial question, though, brother. It really is. And the important thing to to keep in mind is that like any other empire, you know, uh, you got the best and the worst. And we are witnessing in real time the decline and fall of the the US empire. Uh, And like most empires, you know, it unravels owing to military overreach, you got 53 cents for every dollar going to the military industrial complex. You got thousands of bombs still being dropped in various parts of the world. We talk about even when it's mediated with Saudi Arabia, those are still very much US supported bombs in Yemen. Same would be true in other parts of the world. You got massive corruption of, of the elite, not just the political elites. Donald Trump is a particular neo-fascist gangster who represents the worst of the larger history in the Americas. Uh, You've got the cultivated helplessness of the citizenry, trying to convince them they cannot do anything, there is no alternative to the present, and then they end up opting for a strong man. They end up opting for a uh, uh, neo-fascist gangster. But the best of America is still at work. You see it in the streets. Uh, They come in all colors. The best of America is uh, uh, the abolitionist movement. It's the trade union movement. It's the feminist movement, past and present. But the distinctive feature of the fall of any empire, is it's inability to allow for the best of what's inside of it to surface. So there's a blockage. There's a hemorrhage. And what is happening is the best is being pushed to the side. It's being demonized. It's being uh, peripheralized. And therefore, the chickens are coming home to roost, as you say. America's reaping what it has, has sowed in terms of its worst. But, but the best is still there, it's just getting crushed. But again, it's like Chekhov, you know. Chekhov represents the highest level of Russian freedom and democracy in a Russian empire that's never been able to realize it, <laughs> ever. Under the czar, there were wonderful moments in 1917, and then the gangsters set in again. With, with Stalin being the culmination. So when you read Chekhov, you got a foretaste of that freedom and that democracy and that love that's never realized. Well, so it is in the United States that you listen to the blues, you feel the freedom, you feel the love, but the empire can't realize that the infrastructures, the institutions driven by greed and aberrance and ignorance and myopia and short-term thinking that doesn't allow for it, it blocks it. There's a hemorrhaging taking place and that's what makes our moment such a tragic comic one, and it's a very, very uh, sad, sad affair. But we have to have a sad, a sad soul, even as we have cheerful dispositions, because we still got to fight,
1: no matter what. I think what, in, in at least in our view, separates America from from Russia, and your analogy is that. America has at times been able to transform itself, surprisingly. It has been able to transform crises into progress. I know those progress always came with a heavy cost for black people, for the working class, but, but there were real institutional progress in America. And I guess what, what we're asking ourselves now is, is America, is, a, is American empire ready to transform itself? Is it capable of transforming itself, or are there too strong interests against it? Well, you know, you never
2: really know. You know, no one is in control of history. We don't know what the future is going to look like. There's always a mysterious element, an unpredictable element. The future in that sense is incomplete and, and, and open-ended. It's just that in a moment of such overwhelming catastrophe, you got ecological catastrophe intensifying every day, You got possible nuclear catastrophe with two gangsters having their fingers on the button, Putin in the Russian empire, Trump in the US empire. Then you got the economic catastrophe of grotesque wealth inequality, the political catastrophe of the political elites being so driven by greed and narrow ways of viewing the world that the very people they represent feel powerless. But then you got a spiritual catastrophe, which is the inability to create a sense of public life, so people feel as if they are in it together. And you see what the Americans have that the Russians don't have, which is a negative thing, which is a sense of innocence. You see F.O. Matheson, the great Harvard literary critic, used to say America is unique among modern nations to move from perceived innocence to corruption without a mediating stage of maturity. Russia never viewed itself as innocent. The czars They never viewed themselves as innocent. No Russian would ever think that somehow the authors of devastation were innocent. Americans do, vis-a-vis indigenous peoples, vis-a-vis Africans, the, the, the enslavement of Africans. So there's a childishness. There's an adolescent sensibility, a Peter Pan sensibility, a Disney World sensibility in American culture of growing rich and powerful, but not growing up. (laughs) <laughs> and, and 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 you can't you got to grow up and therefore un- understand you know suffering and misery is something you have to work through you don't live in denial about it you don't lie to yourself about it you don't think that somehow w- you, what you are doing is innocent when it's a crime it's a crime against humanity in terms of not just indigenous people but also african slavery and i would say that for working people of all colors in America. I say that for the women, I say that for the gays, the lesbians, the trans and so forth. So that America does have this very childish, romantic conception that Russia don't have. Mm -hmm. Now what America does have that Russia never had was unbelievable vitality, vibrancy and popular culture. And that popular culture would colonize the whole world in a negative and a positive way. It could be James Brown, Aretha Franklin, or or Louis Armstrong. Everybody takes notice because we're at the center of the world. But at the same time, we also got these lies that are being perpetrated. Russia never had that. Russia's had some great artists, but they never had a popular culture that penetrated and saturated every nook and cranny of the world. These days, it's hip-hop, of course. And hip-hop's got the worst and the
1: best as well. What do you think it does to the political movement in America that many of the cultural stars that used to be leading progressive movements, that used to be informing and enlighten the public, that they're now billionaires and, and millionaires and billionaires, like Bernie Sanders would say, millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, I love I love my dear brother Bernie. No, I mean what—that's right. I mean what you end up with. I mean the celebrity culture is a culture of superficial spectacle that refuses to view itself as interveners in a public life that can actually push America in a progressive way. So they view themselves as persons to be objects of spectacle and to celebrate their success rather than to exhibit a moral and spiritual greatness, which always takes the form of being in solidarity with those who suffer. So even the narrow discourse on identity, racial identity, we want black people who are represented in high places. We saw that with Obama, right? So you get a black president in the highest place, you got a black attorney general, you got a black homeland security and what happens? You get a black lives movement on the ground because black lives are not mattering under those black politicians. So that the, the narrow representation of this skin pigmentation has little to do with integrity, solidarity with suffering people. And this is why the moral and the spiritual dimensions are always much more fundamental than any skin
1: pigmentation. It's profoundly human in that sense. The last time I saw you, that was in February. I was with my son. He's 15 years old in New Hampshire. And my son, he's a great Bernie Sanders supporter. He loves Bernie Sanders. So I took him uh, to America and said, well, you should see Bernie Sanders. He might become president. And I saw you in Manchester in New Hampshire with Bernie Sanders. And I saw you on the night when Bernie Sanders, he won. And you were celebrating Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. And, oh yeah, and, and that was a very special moment, of course, for me and my son. But I, I suspect for you as as well. Bernie would go on to win Nevada, and and we had this sensation that there was a steam train rolling across the nation, a multi generational uh, and multiracial coalition that would propel Bernie to victory. So so, why didn't that happen?
2: Yeah, that's a gr- crucial question. And there's two basic uh, factors in my response to it. One is you got an overnight neoliberal unity manifest in the establishment in the Democratic Party, very much instigated by the Clintons and Obamas and others, to get the others to drop out, to all come together behind Biden because they had a anybody but Bernie campaign the democratic party and its establishment was not going to allow a democratic socialist a social democrat who basically had a new deal liberal program but it was over against the wall street dominated orientation over against the militarism of the pentagon orientation and they were not going to allow it but the second factor was even a more painful one especially for me because historically the black community has been the most progressive community supporting the most progressive candidates. For the first time, the black neoliberal leadership led most black voters against the most progressive candidate, against Bernie Sanders, you see, behind Biden. And that's partly owing to the legacy of Obama. See, so again, you get this superficial symbolic identification that is real. There's nothing wrong with symbolic indictment of white supremacy with a black president. But if it's only symbolic and doesn't have substance, you're going to end up hanging out with wall street. You're going to end up having a hanging out with a president who dropped 563 drones on precious people in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Somalia and Mali and Yemen and others, some of them innocent simply because he's black, you support him. It lacks moral and spiritual quality to it. And so the Black community opted for Biden. We did get Black community support under 30, your, your, your precious son's age. What's his name? His name is Nima. Oh, no, has- Brother Nima. Nima, Brother Nima. His his generation, Black and Brown, went with us. But the older generation who vote more, who have many more voters, have a higher percentage of old, older people who vote who are Black or any color for that regard, uh, opted with the neoliberals and Bernie gets crushed, he gets defeated. When we finished in Nevada, we had a party with Bernie, you should have seen the smile on his face, we were hugging, we figured we are on our way to the White House, we can invoke a moral awakening in the country around public life that puts working people and poor people at the center. It was a wonderful moment and then boom, Here comes the neoliberal uh, imposition with the unity. And then, of course, the social media and the uh, corporate media had treated Bernie so negatively. That includes the New York Times. It includes the Washington Post. It includes MSNBC and CNN and the other. They didn't treat him fairly. And, uh, And I've been blessed, of course, to go on Anderson Cooper a number of times. He's my dear brother. I love and respect him. But for most so many of the other shows, they They were very, very unfair to bernie and uh, and now you know what do we get? We get a choice between a neo fascist catastrophe in Trump and a neoliberal disaster in biden and we we 've got to go with Biden because we we have to be part of an anti fascist coalition we 've got to stop the march of America toward fascism, and so part of the coalition is somebody like biden i won 't lie i won 't talk about how wonderful he is and not at all. But I'll vote for him without having a wholesale endorsement of it.
1: But, you know, Bernie said after he's lost that actually he lost the campaign, but that his ideas won. And isn't it fair to say that Bernie has galvanized a, a movement, that he has inspired young people to come out for different courses, and that his ideas are to a certain extent indispensable for Biden at the moment where he is now, you know, after the election? He could be among a lot of different people. That's true. But at this moment right now, Biden needs the enthusiasm of Bernie supporters. And and that brings a certain potential to the progressive cause. Isn't that how you see it? No, oh, it's true.
2: It's true. But a lot of it has to do with the choices that Biden and his people make. You see, you can't. You can't recycle your same neoliberal elites who are under uh, Clinton and Obama, which he's done you know, with Larry Summers and company, and think that the progressives are going to get excited. Now, I've tried to uh, make a strong case that we must vote for Biden as an anti-fascist vote. And Noam Chomsky, my dear brother, makes the same argument. Angela Davis, my dear sister, makes the same argument. But it's a difficult one. I mean, I've been out there now, and people are looking at me like, wow, we just don't have any excitement for him. We look at the people around him. I say, yes, but fascism is real. And disregard of law, the rule of big money, the rule of big business, the scapegoating of the, of the most vulnerable that is characteristic of the fascist project. Now, American fascism is going to be very, very distinctive. It's going to be rooted in individualism. It's going to be rooted in a very adolescent conception of waving the flag. And it's going to be rooted in white supremacy. Deep commitment to white supremacy. That's why the Ku Klux Klan gives Donald Trump a standing ovation. That's what we saw in Charlottesville when we were there, as you know. We were standing right there in front of them, right? 21 different groups of them. emboldened, coming out in public, hating Jews, hating black folk. Hating gays and so forth, uh, uh, you know this is the, the fascism is very it is real and therefore you know a, a Biden does constitute a uh, a first step towards stopping the American march toward fascism. There's no doubt about it.
1: Were you surprised by? Or let me phrase it another way. My my kids say I have a daughter who's three years older than my son. And when Obama was going to be elected, I took my family to San Francisco because we wanted to be the most liberal place when the most liberal president was <laughs> before. Because, you know, we're left-wingers and we always suffer defeat. Every time we have a candidate that we trust in, he deceives us or he loses. That's how That's we like it out for us. That's true. So we went to see Obama win and I thought this could be a transformative moment of, of politics for my, and for my kids to grow up with. And we were so disappointed with Obama. We, we never believed that he would succumb to the plutocrats. Is that a, a moral failure on behalf of Obama, or is that, in your view, just a, does that just testify to the institutional strength of money in America?
2: Well, I think on the one hand, it, it was an individual matter. It turned, it, out, it turned out he just didn't have a strong spine. He became too spineless. He became too enamored by the Wall Street elites who invited him in. You remember the meeting that he had in March 2009, which was a few months after he was inaugurated. He met with Wall Street. He walks in and says, I stand between you and the pitchforks, the people in the street. I will protect you. Ron Susskind talks about this in Confidence Men, the book. I will protect you. We say, well, wait a minute. That's what you say to working people. That's what you say to poor people. That's what you say to black people indigenous people, you will protect them against corporate interests, against Wall Street interest, against the greed and avarice and the manipulation of law. And the question will become, how many Wall Street criminals will go to jail? Insider trading, market manipulation, fraudulent activity, predatory lending, massive criminality. How many went to jail? Zero. So it was very clear he protected them in that regard. Well, who's whispering in his ear? Tim Geithner, his treasury secretary, straight out of Wall Street. Larry Summers, Straight out of harvard and wall street in terms of his solidarity with the elites and ruling class so he's listening to these folk he's enamored by them and it's very clear then that he's not going to follow through same is true with the tortures with brennan the counter let the tortures off not thought you believe in individual responsibility you just go down to black colleges and tell them you must take individual responsibility we got people who tortured people and Abu Ghraib and other places. No, we're going to let him off the hook. We don't believe in going back. It was clear he wasn't serious. He, he wasn't strong. The same was true with health care. He meets with big farm, he, pharmaceutical companies. He meets with big insurance companies and makes the deal before there's a public dialogue on it. So that Medicare for all never even has a chance. Public option never even has a chance. But he said he is for single-payer Medicare for all when he ran. It said, Oh, he came in. In football in America, you know, you usually punt on the fourth down, the last down. He <laughs> punt it on the second down. <laughs> he punted on the second. We understand if he had failed, that's all right. We we're used to failing as progressives, but you fight no matter what. You don't give up quickly. So it became very clear that he just didn't have spine. Now the other factor that's very important is that we progressives did not put strong pressure on him. The black community went silent because they didn't want to criticize the black presidents. So when I did, I was called a traitor. I was called un-American. I was called, I've got this personal resentment against him and so forth. You said, no, we alive the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Mark Malcolm X, and others. If Pharaohs are black, you're still critical of Pharaohs. If they're white, you're critical of Pharaohs. No matter what color the Pharaoh is, you got to say, let my people go. It's a moral and spiritual issue, you see. And even among the white progressive, they didn't want to be too critical of the black president because they looked like they might be too racist or uh, impatient and so forth. So they went silent too. He didn't have strong white critics of the president because he could use his blackness as a way of silencing their dissent. And that's sad because we have to be able to Be honest with one another. I mean, even in love, as a Christian, you know, you got to respect, protect, and correct. Like your your children, right? You love your children. You're going to respect them. You're going to protect them. But you're going to correct them too. Yes. That's what love does. That's what it's about.
1: On the front page of the New York Times, the day after Obama was elected, it, it said that last night the Civil War ended in America. And and we are naive. We're from Denmark. That's a small country, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so we're, the only person not naive is Sir Kierkegaard. And you know, you, you didn't.
2: <laughs> I don't think Hans Christian Andersen was too naive.
1: He understood evil now. He understood evil. <laughs> <laughs> true, but I actually was naive enough to believe the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> 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 <the> last night. <laughs> and they, And and then eight years later, you have Donald Trump, and it's like race is front and center of American politics again. And I think in Europe, or at least in Denmark, we don't understand the role that race continues to play in, in America. Were you surprised by the racial backlash?
2: No, not at all. Not at all. Every major breakthrough against white supremacy creates a... A white backlash of a reactionary sort. We saw it in the Civil War, right? Confederacy army lost the war. White supremacy won the peace. With Jim Crow, Jane Crow, black codes, lynching went on for another hundred years. After the 1960s, we get another chance. Here comes Richard Nixon, solid majority, law and order. The same language that uh, that Trump is using right now, and law and order does not mean law and order for Wall Street. They're not gonna regulate Wall Street. They've defunded the police for Wall Street a long time ago. They're talking about <laughs> suppressing and containing poor people, working people, especially those on the chocolate side of town. So I'm not surprised at the white backlash. What I hate is that we, when we had a chance, we didn't follow through for poor and working people. You know, many of us went on poverty tours during the Obama years to try to talk about poverty. He and his elites would never even use the word poverty. So what happens is you end up with the wage stagnation, the downward mobility of working people, especially white working people who who, who generate and have a strong contempt and hatred for neoliberal elites. They're looking for an alternative. If they can't find Bernie, then they find Trump. So there's a sense in which the neoliberal policies help reinforce the neo-fascist tilt, the neo-fascist orientation, because not all of the supporters of Trump are Ku Klux Klan. Not all are white supremacists. They're working people who are hurting, tremendous pain, but they can't find a way out. So they see Trump and say, oh my God, I don't like him. He uses ugly language, but at least he's against NAFTA. At least he's talking about American jobs. So you get that class element couched in a deeply white supremacist project, which is Trump's project. The neo-fascist project is always xenophobic, always. But in America, its face is white supremacists. But if you you get beyond that, you also find working people in trouble, suffering, and they can't find a way out. And Bernie was the only one to speak to that, you see.
1: It seems there is a legacy from, Martin Luther King that you've written about extensively Dr. King that that you cannot confront racism without confronting imperialism and capitalism at the same time that capitalism, imperialism and racism, they go together in America. That's the late Martin Luther King, Jr. That's right.
2: And keep in mind when Martin Luther King, Jr. was shot down like a dog in Memphis on that porch, at Lorraine Hotel. 72% of Americans disapproved of him and 51% of black Americans disapproved of him because he was bringing the poor together across race. They were saying he's going beyond civil rights. Now he's talking about fighting poverty, criticizing capitalism, but he was also critical of the war in Vietnam and many black leaders, civil rights leaders were saying, oh, he's beginning to sound like Radio Hanoi, sound like he's siding with the Vietnamese of the North. He has no right talking about foreign policy. He's a civil rights actor. And of course, New York Times, Washington Post, and others were just trashing King. I mean, after he gave the famous speech, breaking the silence, you know, 125 newspapers demonized him and trashed him. So that King's message was cutting against the grain as a whole. It really was. And what would he say? He would say the bombs dropped in Vietnam, land in ghettos. They land in Appalachia with the white poor. They land in the barrio with the Latinos. They land on reservations with indigenous peoples, not only because the resources are taken away for military usage, but because the mentality is such that you think you solve problems in a militarizing way. And we've seen the militarization of the police. We've seen the militarization of the schools. We see the militarization even of Public life. So you can't even have a conversation, the cancellation culture. Oh, somebody disagrees with you, you got to cancel them, cut them out. Act as if they don't exist because you are ruling faith. No, no. We got a jazz sensibility. You lift every voice, not an echo. You lift every voice. Everybody got a voice. People have a right to be wrong. I'm a libertarian about these things. Conservatives have a right to be wrong, they ought not to be canceled you engage them, you organize against them. But this, this notion of somehow you got the power to cancel people as if the ruling class is not gonna cancel the progressives in a minute if it's all power and nothing but power, then we're gone. Then we're in deep trouble. That's the triumph of Thrasymachus over Socrates and Plato's Republic. It's the triumph of the Grand Inquisitor in Brothers Karamazov of Dostoevsky manipulate the people, dominate the people, subordinate the people, but you're always in control. You see, that's, that's, that's an ugly mentality. We learned some of that from Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was not the kind of progressive politically that I like, but his critique of bourgeois Christendom was profound. And you know what I'm talking about.
1: (laughs) I do. do. But it seems to me that that legacy of Martin Luther King and you celebrate the Martin Luther King day and he's, a towering figure now in America. But it seems to me that the socialism has been left out. And when people are complaining that Black Lives Matter are socialist, I'm saying, well, the problem is they're not socialist, that you need more socialism in the movement. Is it not true that this, this understanding of confronting capitalism and racism at the same time, being against racism, being socialist at the same time, this legacy is very weak today, isn't it?
2: Well, it's stronger than ever because of Bernie, because you've got now the, yeah. the vast majority of people under 30 who think more favorably of socialism than they do capitalism. That's unprecedented. When you had Norman Thomas and Michael Harrington and Barbara Ehrenreich and Stanley Aronowitz and others, see, we, we were part of Democratic Socialists of America in 1982. And at that time, we had about 2% of the folk even heard about us. Now you got AOC. I mean, you got a larger stage, really, of but. It's true that we, you have to understand that the United States is not just a fragile experiment in democracy that's collapsing, but it's also an empire that's declining and decaying. And America has always been both an empire on the one hand and a fragile experiment in democracy of limited scope on the other. You got to keep two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time yeah. and still retain the ability to function as F. Scott Fitzgerald said in that wonderful essay the crack up in Esquire magazine, 1939 uh and, and, and yet, you know, the, look at the platform of Black Lives Matter, they, 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 they've got a strong critique of capitalism and imperialism. But when you look at those in the street, and that's millions, the beautiful sight, really, multiracial folks, it's a beautiful <laughs> thing to see. Uh, but most of them you know, don't have a critique of capitalism. They're rightly upset with the uh, police murder and police brutality.
1: I have two more questions for you because time is running and we could talk. No, once. no, we go by the spirit, brother. Don't worry about no calendar time. Don't, don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, in, in the anti-colonial struggle, there was always this philosophical problem that, you know, Frantz Fanon on one hand would say, we are not the indigenous people. We are the universal people. We are the citizens of the world. We are not the colonized people. We want to transcend being colonized. And then on the other hand, you had Amy Césaire, who said, no, we have this special negritude. We have this special essence of being who we are. And we must go back to our original culture to find strength to be a strong political subject against racism. And the problem, of course, is that if you're, if you're suppressed by racists, then they give you a certain identity. You are Black. That's right. Do You fight back as Blacks, and with that, Confirm the racist identity, or do you, as Dr. Martin Luther King and Franz Fanon would say, transcend that race? And that seems to me to be at the core of anti racist and anti colonial struggles uh, today. I, I wonder where you come out on that question.
2: You know, I think that both sides have an insight that, uh, you know, the great Paul Gilroy talks about uh, the interplay of roots and routes, R O O T S and R O U. T E S. Um, so that when, when Amos is there and all of his really great works, uh, Return to Native Land and so forth, uh, rereading of the Tempest by Shakespeare, when he was talking about going back to the roots, he knew that the roots had the best and the worst. Hmm. You got to return to the best of your roots. It's like returning to the best of your mama and your daddy, the best of your community, the best of what shaped you. Because you are who you are. And each, each one of us, we're unique and singular. No one like us in the whole world. So there's got to be particularity at the basis of it. Or you're going to end up with a pseudo-universality. Nobody is completely rootless. Nobody. Even Erasmus, at the very end of his life, what did he do? He went back and he spoke in his native language. He'd been speaking Latin his whole life. His whole life. But no, here comes the Dutch. Oh, that language came through at the very, very end. So the roots do matter, but you can't be suffocated by your roots. You got to have routes. So you become a universal oriented person rooted in your particularity. So that you're not tribal, so that you're not narrowly grouped. You have a sense of the world and even the cosmos and even sentient creatures and dogs and cats. We won't get into all that, but. We've got to defend our precious dogs and cats and other sentient creatures in this ecological crisis. But you have to have an overflowing of a compassion and a vision and so forth. And so in that sense, for me, I want to learn from both of them. And both of them have blind spots because we all have blind spots. For no one doesn't have monopoly on the truth. You know, he's not right about violence. Violence is not some cathartic mechanism that allows you to come into a better sense of who you are. Look at America. America is a gunfighter nation. More regeneration through violence is vicious, becomes nihilistic. But Fanon says, we don't keep track of the institutionalized violence coming at oppressed people. So we're much more concerned about the violence of the oppressed and not the violence of the oppressors in their institution. He's absolutely right about that. Absolutely right about that, you see. And so it's a matter really of again, being jazz-like. You see, we gotta be flexible in our analysis. You look for the power of discernment. You look for the wisdom. You look for the vision. You look for where you can be empowered in that way. But in the end though, brother, it's gonna be the artists and the musicians who constitute our vanguard, man. You know, when when Shelley at the very end of *Defense of poetry, he says, oh, the hierophants of un- apprehended inspiration. The mirrors of the gigantic shadows of futurity cast on the present, the unacknowledged legislators of the world. He's not talking about versifiers of poets. He's talking about all human beings who use imagination to authorize an alternative reality vis-a-vis the reality they find themselves in. All who use empathy and imagination to try to create something better. That's Shelley. That's Percy Shelley revolutionary that he was in solidarity with the Greeks coming from Britain and so forth. That's part and parcel of what it is to be a grand artist, but not just an artist who produces products, but an artist of living who produces a well-lived life of struggle, fortitude, compassion, vision, service to others, and style and a smile. We back to the blues now. Style and a smile. Don't give up your smile and never give up your style now. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. My last, I promise I won't never give up any other yes. <laughs> That's, That's a promise though, brother. That's a promise.
1: <laughs> I will share it. Now, the last question is, we've been through, you know, really, really tough capitalism, concentration of power, extreme inequality, persistent racism in America, and You know, like opponents that you, if you met them in a fairy tale, you want, oh, give me that, give me that magic sword that I could use to take him down. But it seems to me that your magic sword keeps being ideas, that you have a belief in Socratic dialogue and philosophical ideas. And my last question is, how do you keep up believing in, in ideas like that? Well, again, you know,
2: it takes you back to the cross, though, brother. The Roman Empire thought that they had completely snuffed out this exemplar of love. And Josephus called it the way, the way of love. They thought they had snuffed it out. So all they had was just the blood at the bottom of that cross. But well, those blood were love drops. And those drops continued to overflow. Even Peter, who was the basis of the church denied him three times. So we ought to have low expectations of the church. The church is founded on a denier of that love but he bounces back, right? And as long as his brother's like you and others, we haven't been snuffed out yet. There's still a cloud of witnesses out there, and they come in very different forms. You got prophetic Muslims like Malcolm X. You got prophetic Buddhists like bell hooks. You got prophetic agnostic folk like James Baldwin, and you know analogs in your own culture. As long as we are around, then we've got some hope, because hope is a verb as much as a virtue, you got to stay in motion. You keep fighting. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, says Duke Elliott. And there's a sting in the swing with the dissonance, the minor key, that makes sure the major key doesn't dominate, and that minor key allows for the suffering to come through. That's radical democracy at its best. Accountability of the powers in place, no matter what color or gender or sexual orientation, we're concerned about the dignity and the decency of those sly stone call everyday people, everyday people, poor working people all around the world.
1: Thank you very much, bluesman. Thank you very much, jazzman. Know that whenever you're speaking on type rope, you have an audience here in Denmark, and we're cheering for you. You lighten our spirits. You lighten our souls. Thank you very much for being with us.
2: Will you stay strong in your struggles, right there in Denmark as well. And really, God bless your uh, your loved ones. Be safe and, and strong in this situation, though that we're in. That's global. You know what I mean?
1: I don't. You very
2: much so. Salute you, my brother.
0: Tak for nu. Det her var min samtale med Colonel West. I nästa veck har jeg talt med en helt annan om noget helt andet. Det er nemlig ingen ringer end Sochana Zuboff, som er den førende kritiker af den amerikanske techkapitalisme, kapitalisme som vil fortælle om, hvordan hun har oplevet de fire år med Donald Trump, og hvordan hun ser kampen mellem det politiske system, demokratiet og så hele den techkapitalisme, som har snedt ind over alt i vores produktionsapparat, i vores institutioner og i vores privatliv. Det er en kamp, som det ser ud til, at vi har tabt på forhånd. Spørgsmålet er, om Sochana Zuboff synes det. Det lover jeg, at der er svar på i næste uge.